Welcome to HMH Learning Moments. I'm Annalie, and for today's Teachers in America episode, host Rose L. Mitchell, HMH's Chief Learning Officer, sits down with Amanda Rack at the Knob Hill Elementary School in San Marcos, California, about 45 miles from the border with Mexico. Amanda is a new mom and a first grade teacher who returned to her classroom midway through the school year. Now let's hear from Amanda and Rose. Tell me a little bit about the moment, if you remember it, when you decided you wanted to be a teacher. I feel like I always kind of knew I wanted to be a teacher. As long ago as when I was a little girl, I was always had my stuffed animals set up and I would be teaching them in my room. And even when friends came over, we would like play teacher all the time. And that was, I was always the teacher role. I definitely tried other routes because I thought that teachers didn't make a lot of money. And so I knew I wanted to work with children. So I was about four different majors. I ended up graduating with my degree in child psychology. And the second I graduated, I was like, I should have gotten my teacher credential. So I went immediately and did my teacher credential program and I finished my credential in 2008. And that's a great combination having child psychology and a teacher credential, right? Because it's not just about the teaching. It's also about really understanding the kids in front of you. Absolutely. And when I was in college, I was actually a behavioral therapist for children with autism for four years. And so that gave me a lot of good insight into students with special needs and working with them and how I can best serve them. Do you have an example of something you learned early on through that process? It's a lot of recognizing those behaviors. There are children that are on the spectrum and their parents might be not be aware of what the signs of that are. Two years ago, I had a student and in the beginning of the year, I kind of thought that he was on the spectrum. There were some things that were really sticking out for me. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I can't diagnose, but I did let the parents know that there were some things that I noticed. He was perseverating, he was kind of doing hand flapping. And I think I knew that because I had worked with so many children with autism and he was diagnosed at the end of the year with autism. And that really helped them find out how they were going to move forward with his education and how they could help him succeed in the classroom because now they knew that they needed to get different resources for him. And that's a whole different set of recognition skills and awareness Mm -hmm. and even language about how to talk to kids themselves and parents about an issue like that. That's not what you learn in a literacy course, right? No. And one thing I learned early on is that like a child isn't autistic. They're a child that has autism. And just being a little bit more sensitive about how we talk about certain needs or special needs that students have. You have a a lot of English learners in the school Mm -hmm. and obviously a lot of students who might be second generation, but also first generation immigrant children. We just saw your literacy block this morning. How does that change the nature of how you teach reading and, and how you approach literacy? Changes a lot. I think good teachers use strategies every day that help English language learners. I think when you're using good good teaching practices, kind of set them up for success because you're giving them graphic organizers, you're using visual cues. So for me, that's like the des- the integrated ELD. That's the ELD that's integrated into my daily lessons. And it's just about being a good teacher in many ways, right? good teaching yeah. practices. So if you're doing modeling good teaching practices, you're already going to be giving those students a lot of what they need. But also at our school, we have designated ELD time. So that's um, 20 to 30 so minutes. ELD is English language English, development, yes, right? English yeah. language development. Mm. So during each day of learning, we have 20 to 30 minutes during the day where we meet with just our our lowest ELD kids and we give them focus support. And we do have curriculum for that. 
um, some of the old, other grades at our school, the older grades, they'll like push out. So they, all the kids that are at this level go to this teacher. So we do have to be a lot more cognizant and aware of making sure that we're helping those students. I've had a few students that came to me as English language learners. And by the end of the year, they were reclassified as English proficient. Because so that they means they're, they're effectively learned English mm-hmm. and met even their reading goals for that year, which Absolutely. is amazing. Absolutely. Because the goal is to get them reclassified by fifth grade, because studies have shown that students that are not classified as English proficient by fifth grade, or by the time they go into middle school, aren't as successful because they kind of get, once they get into middle school, they get pushed into, I'm an English language learner. I have to be in these classes. I have to be on this track. And it keeps them from doing other things that other students who aren't English language learners get to do. So does that make you feel pressured to try and have students, especially at, you know, you teach first grade yeah. at this at this um, early, early level to to really make those kinds of gains in a year. I think I feel a lot of pressure as a first grade teacher altogether because... It's a big year, It's a big grade. year. It's like it, so much happens. Yeah, and I'm responsible for teaching them the one tool that they need to be successful for the rest of their lives, which is reading. And like, if they leave my room and they can't read well, that's going to hinder them from grade to grade to grade. There's a lot of pressure there, but it's also why I love first grade. Because it's really rewarding and watching students start the beginning of the school year and not know how to read or have limited reading skills to hear by the end of the year, their parents saying, oh, we're driving in the car. They're reading every sign. They're reading to me at home. They're reading to their siblings. To me, that is the gift of being a first grade teacher. So yeah, it's pressure, but it's also super rewarding. It's sort of a miracle, right? (laughs) Well, and of course, all the science shows that when our brains actually aren't aren't really organized to read, right? Um, They're very much organized to speak. Mm -hmm. And even writing is a more familiar kind of activity than reading to our brain. So the the amount of systems that have to engage to make it happen is is amazing. Well, especially with the English language. I mean, there's phonics patterns and you teach them these patterns and then there's 40 words that are an exception to the rule and you can't really explain to them why. It's just that's the way it is. We were just teaching long E with double E and E-A. And it's hard because I have to tell them, well, you just have to figure out which one looks right. And as a first, because there's no rule. Right. Do you think literacy and how you've taught it has changed a lot in the last decade or so that you've been teaching? Absolutely. Because when I started teaching, it was all whole group. This is how we teach reading. It's just, here's a book. Let's talk about it. This is um, a whole group lesson. And now I feel like we use both. So we do a lot of whole group activities, but then my, as you saw, my reading block really is small group guided reading. Also, I can determine which groups are having more difficulty with fiction texts and which ones are having more difficulty with nonfiction. Because for some kids, fiction comes really easily and nonfiction is really challenging and then vice versa. So I think it's changed a lot. There's a lot more focus on reading comprehension. And I also think that we are expecting a lot more out of kids than we used to. I'm amazed by what these first graders can do. But I have learned over the years that if you keep the level of expectation low, that's where your kids will sit. If you raise the level of expectation, they'll they'll rise and they'll meet you there. Yeah. So, And even six-year-olds know. They totally. know when something significant is expected of them and mm-hmm. they know when, frankly, it's lower. And often I think kids get that sense that you don't care enough about them to set a high expectation, Absolutely. Right? Thinking about literacy as something not just, you know, a set of comprehension skills mm-hmm. or phonemic skills that you teach. What are some of the things that you do to create kind of a, a culture of literacy that's different and perhaps not part of 
you know, the standards or, or academics? Well, I, one thing I've been really trying to work on with literacy this year is as a team, we kind of talked about trying to introduce more diverse books to our students. You mean as a, as a group as of a first grade, grade team? team? Yeah. yeah. How many, how many on that team? Six. Six. So six grade one teachers and you all plan together? Um, not always. Sometimes right. we do, but it's, it was a conversation we started having around Dr. Seuss's birthday about Read Across America and that the kids already have a lot of exposure to Dr. Seuss. So instead of spending a full day talking about Dr. Seuss, why don't we actually read across America and introduce the students during that week to books that come from all different places? So we found books from different cultures. We had books that had children that were different races, that had different beliefs and values. I think it's important with bringing diverse books to the classroom because I want to make sure that every child can connect to that book by knowing that there's someone in that book that maybe looks like them or has a family like them. And with trying to have more diverse books in the classroom, it gives kids two things. It One lets them see a reflection of themselves, but it also lets them see past themselves and to see characters that are different than them and realize that that's okay too. Yeah. And it's okay to be different. So one thing I've I always use is Donors Choose, and Donors Choose is a website that teachers can put up projects that they would like to get funded for their classrooms, and community members donate, sometimes the parents donate. And so I made a Donors Choose project for getting diverse books for our classroom, and um, it got fully funded, which I was really excited How about. How much was it for? It was about $700. That is great. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And so I got 37 new hardback books for our classroom that have diverse characters. They're from diverse backgrounds. And so we've been reading a lot of those every day. I try to choose one and reread them just to kind of show them that mm. things can be different. Yesterday, we ended the day with um, a circle and we all they all went around and talked about what makes them unique and special and like why they like that about themselves. And I just really want them to start realizing that who they are is special and that it doesn't mean that they need to be like somebody else to be special. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, that's fantastic. And uh, it, it seems like you've been able to get hold of enough kinds of diverse books, right? Once you... Yeah, and I couldn't have done that. There. I couldn't have done it without that support. I spend a lot of money on my own classroom and buy a lot of books. Have you worked out how much you do spend every year? Uh, probably a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. Even with like the school supplies. I buy all the school supplies at the beginning of the school year. Like Parent, pencil boxes, um, all the glue sticks, their crayons making sure that they have the, all their folders, all their notebooks, labels for all of that, all the clipboards I have in my so classroom, whiteboards. So does the school tell you that you have to... You have to no, I mean, those are things that I provide because I know that it's going to make their learning more successful and like make our classroom run more efficiently. Mm -hmm. We do get donations from parents, which is great, but I do we do work at a low-income school, and so there you are. So there really to, isn't a budget for buying... Actual. Yeah, we do get supplies at the beginning of the year. We can order certain things. Mm. We can order crayons. We can order glue sticks. But it's nice to be able to make sure that everyone has the same thing and that there's. it's not like we could do a supply list yeah. you know, or all the parents bring something. We get three reams of paper a month and that's all we get to use for copy. So I ask for donations for copy paper so that, and sometimes I go buy it at Costco. So I think I spend probably a couple thousand dollars a year on school supplies and even just to make my classroom look the way it is. Yeah, like which I, is beautiful, oh, by the way. <laughs> Going back to the topic of students who come to you from other countries, the immigration 
debate that's happening nationally and suddenly there are local conversations around immigration. Other teachers tell me that this is impacting their schools and sometimes their classrooms. I mean, has that been an issue for you over the last period? I don't think it has been as much of an issue, I think, because of where we live. Being so close to the border and living in San Diego, I feel like it's not as much of an issue because it's just the culture of our neighborhoods. Do you feel like you live in a almost a bilingual culture? I mean, do you um, hear that much I Spanish? I don't hear a lot of Spanish. A lot of the families that do come here, they want to learn English and they want their kids to learn English. And so they really focus on trying to make sure that English is up in the front of their yeah. vocabulary. Are there parents, though, that you see on Parent Teacher Night that don't speak English? Absolutely. And one of the things that I use for my class as far as rewards is an app on the phone, and it's called Class Dojo. And so... Mo- my kids teach you uses Class yeah, Dojo. Yeah, so it's almost great. all of the parents have it on their phones. And what's what I love about Class Dojo is when the parent signs up, they select their language. So I have Spanish speakers that their language is Spanish. So when I send a message through Class Dojo, it's automatically translated into Spanish. So when they read it, it comes to them in Spanish. When they type on their phone in Spanish, it automatically comes in in English to me. And it really helps bridge a gap. Wow. In that is the power of technology. Yeah. So I'm going to switch a little bit to talk about you, which mm-hmm. doesn't always happen. We tend to, when we talk about teachers, which is one of the reasons we're doing this, this show, is when we talk to teachers, often we talk about the things that you and I have just talked about, which is the kids, the instruction, you know, best practices in the classroom. And I think sometimes people are prone to forget that teachers have More this life beings. outside of, you know, room 21, right, yeah. in the elementary school. You've just had a baby a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. Tell me about him. Yeah, my son Landon is um, just turned eight months. And so I spent the first half of the school year at home with him. I came back in January after our winter break, which was a really hard transition, hard transition for me as a mom and as a teacher. It was hard to leave him. And I think as a teacher, it's a different kind. I'm sure all parents, when they leave their child and go to work, feel that same feeling of separation and feeling bad or having it be difficult. I think what's different being a teacher is that I'm spending more time with other people's children (laughs) than my own. And that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. And, you know, I know that I'm leaving him with somebody else who I hope has the same love and care for him as I do for the kids in my class. But it's definitely been a struggle. I feel like as a teacher, it's always been my identity as being a teacher. And I feel like I've always been somebody that really gives a hundred and 10% in my classroom and to my kids. One thing that has been challenging for me coming back is kind of this feeling of mediocrity because I feel like I'm stretched. And so I feel like sometimes I'm mediocre in the classroom and sometimes I feel mediocre at home. I just feel like I'm being pulled and I'm not able to give my best everywhere. And I think for me, that's been a really hard, hard struggle. It's the hardest thing about being a working mother. And I think it's true of teachers, of nurses, of doctors, Absolutely. of business people. It's just you 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 thought you were juggling and multitasking your life before yeah. kids. And then when you have a kid and you keep working, it's, hard. it's just nothing feels feels like it's getting done. And well, I can't right? get anything done at home. I can plan to do work at home. And the second I get home, 
he's my priority and yeah. work's not going to get done. And I've had to so, kind of just like come to terms with that and be like, that's okay. Yeah. And also knowing that what I am bringing to the table is enough. I'm giving these kids a lot and I'm doing a lot for them. And it may not feel like a lot to me, but I'm going to be my own worst critic. And I have to know that I am succeeding here and I am succeeding at home. Just being here and being with you, you know, it's obvious. <laughs> and your absolute commitment to each kid, completely evident. There's a phrase, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've heard about it, but I found it really helpful when I had many of these same feelings coming back to work, um, which is good enough mothering, right? So instead of thinking it's got to be perfect or it's got to be this. It's like, yeah. it's could be good enough, you know? And I think that's, that's right. And Absolutely. my guess is that your teaching is not good enough teaching. <laughs> but it's funny. I'm a very, I'm very OCD in the classroom. I'm very like, things have to be a certain way. And like, when I make anchor charts, they need to look the right way and look nice. And I sometimes have to remind myself, Amanda, it's good enough for who it's for. Yeah. Like it's for six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and and it's you know okay. what? It's good for it's also good for little kids to see that teachers aren't perfect all oh, the yeah. time, right? So it's been challenging, but I also feel like it's taught me a lot about myself and about what I'm capable of. And I think it makes me also value the role that I have with the kids a lot more. Because I I now know what I'm looking for and expecting for my child when he's in school. And to know that someone's spending that much time with them every day, I want to make sure that they're not only teaching them education, but also that they're helping me make my child a good person yeah. and that they're kind and considerate and make them feel like they're cared about and that they're loved. And I think I did that before. That's been something for me that's always been a strength I think I have, but also something that's always my focus is to make personal connections with each of my students. And What make, are some of the ways you do that? Just like by learning about them, taking time to, taking time to have small conversations with them even in the middle of the school day, to find out about what they learned or find out about what they like to do outside of school. If they have a baseball game and they let me know about it, going to that baseball game or doing things that just let them know that I really care about them. Kids that feel cared about and kids that feel loved achieve greater because yeah. they also want to please me and show me that they're doing a good job. And I think that I always have done that, but I think my level of concern and care and making sure that the way I say things to them is different because now I'm thinking about it as a mother too. Yeah. This interesting Venn diagram between teacher and mother, yeah. right? Where they sometimes get very, very close and then Absolutely. other times um, very separate, which can be tiring, right? Because it, mm -hmm. in some sense, especially as you inhabit the role of mother more, it feels like you might be mothering all day long and sometimes all 25 kids. Mm -hmm. I was a, just talking to them ask. about that the other day. I said, I'm not just your teacher. I'm a nurse. When you fall and hurt your knee, I'm your counselor when you're upset about something and I have to make you feel better or I want to make you feel better. And teachers have a lot of different jobs. I have one little girl this year who doesn't ever, isn't able to bring a snack to school every day. And I have snacks and every day at snack recess, I make sure that I give her a snack so she has a snack. And I was gone on um, parental leave for like six days. So I packed her six days worth of snacks and made sure that she had them in her backpack so that she had them while I was gone because I knew that she wouldn't have them otherwise. And those are the things as a teacher you go home and you worry about. And those are the things that you don't learn in ed school. No. Can you ever imagine leaving teaching? There's, I don't know, there's, 
I have a real passion for teaching teachers. That's kind of what I really love to do. Um, I do have my... You mean new teachers? like Yeah, new yeah. teachers. Um, I do have my admin credentials, so that's eventually something I hope to move into and move into a more administrative position. But not right now, because right now I'm going to focus on these kids and I'm going to focus on my family. Once I feel like my, my family's more settled and we're done having kids, then I think I'll try to venture into that. But I think it's what I was meant to do. Anything else wouldn't be as fulfilling. Coming back to the kids in this classroom, what do you hope that each child will be able to take with them from Miss Rack's class to second grade? I want every student to leave knowing that they were loved and cared about and knowing that every day when they came to school, they had somebody in their court that cheered them on. Well, I'm pretty sure seeing those happy faces in the playground (laughs) (laughs) that they feel that. I hope so. I have a lot of kids that come back to visit me year after year. And I think that's because of the connections I make with them and them knowing that even if they're not my kid anymore in my class, like I still have ownership over them in some way and that I still believe in them and And, I want to see them succeed. And you'll always be their first grade teacher. I can imagine uh, some future podcast of Teachers in America (laughs) and and, uh, a teacher saying that they became influenced to be a teacher by their first grade teacher, Mrs. Rex. Yeah, that would be crazy. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for spending so much time yeah. and, and giving your heart to your kids and, and to the work that you do. Absolutely. We're so grateful for teachers like you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and learning with us. You can join our community and read our Shaped blog by visiting hmhco.com backslash shaped. That's hmhco.com backslash s-h-a-p-e-d. You can follow HMH Learning Moments on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and will please consider rating and reviewing or sharing with your network. HMH Learning Moments is produced by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, The Learning Company. Thanks again for listening.